0: Like you, I am still catching my breath over the news that Rex Tillerson was fired and that CIA director Mike Pompeo has been nominated as his replacement as Secretary of State. That happened, of course, just days after a South Korean diplomat announced at the White House a summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un scheduled for May. And I was just getting my head around that news and its broader implications when, of course, this firing by tweet occurred. Fortunately for all of us, I had on my schedule an interview with Uri Friedman, a staff writer at The Atlantic who covers global affairs and U.S. foreign policy. He has written extensively about U.S. diplomacy and North Korea, and in this episode, can I just talk through this news? And I think you'll find this conversation useful. I know I did. I learned some interesting things about Pompeo's background and also the implications of having a Secretary of State who, unlike Rex Tillerson, is personally close with the President and more on the same page as the White House. Uri recently published an article on Pompeo and North Korea, which we reference in this conversation, and I'll, I'll post a link to that on the website. Before we begin, a big thank you to everyone who is leaving reviews of the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to your, your podcasts, and also to you amazing listeners who support the show on Patreon. Thank you so much. Your support helps keep this show going and means a lot to me personally. Thank you. And my offer to mail you a sticker in return for your reviews of the show on on iTunes or elsewhere still stands. So just email me your address when you write the review, and I'll gladly send you this token of my appreciation. In other news, next month in April, I will be giving a talk at UMass Boston to students in the McCormick Graduate School of Policy and Global Studies. If any of you listeners are are out there and students at UMass, send me a note and I'll send you the details on the talk. It should be fun. All right, now here is my conversation with Uri Friedman of The Atlantic. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Man, I don't even know where to begin, worry. <laughs> um, we were supposed to speak yesterday. We're speaking on Wednesday. We were supposed to speak yesterday on Tuesday. Uh, about the North Korea meeting summit that's supposedly going to happen. But then the chaos of yesterday transpired. And and so here we are a day later, just trying to reflect and and make sense of it all. To to kick off, what do we know about Mike Pompeo? I mean, can you give me like a quick background on his political history and, and how he came into prominence in the Trump administration?
1: Sure. So, I mean, he started off actually. He was in the army to begin with. He was in the U.S. Army uh, and in the armored cavalry. And he had an interesting. He was there during an interesting period. He was stationed, uh, you know, doing patrols along the East German border and the Czech border at the end of the Cold War in the late 80s. Um, So he saw the collapse of the of you know the, the first first of all the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the collapse of the Soviet Union up close. He then was a businessman in Kansas and then came into Congress as part of the Tea Party wave in 2011. And he he has an interesting view of foreign policy that in some ways connects with Donald Trump and in other ways doesn't. Um, for example, on... Terrorism. He was very. He was saying a lot of the things that Donald Trump was saying during the campaign on, you know, calling out radical Islamic extremism, taking it as an ideological struggle, not just you know a limited counterterrorism struggle. Um, Dabbling in Islamophobia, we should say as well. Yeah, as did Donald Trump. Uh, Yes, and he he did also talk about how when he talked about radical Islamic extremism that he almost framed it as two sides of the same coin with Shia and Sunni uh, radical extremism and saying that Iran was one side of the coin and Sunni terrorism, as embodied by ISIS and Al Qaeda, um, was another side. So he was very vocal on that at the time. And this was also during the period when ISIS was at its height, um, in terms of its attacks and, and expansion in Syria and Iraq. Um, he, one point, place where I would point out where he differs is on Russia. And this is something that's going to be very interesting to watch as he ascends to the role of uh, Secretary of State. I, I, you know, was checking out a, a speech he gave in Kansas in 2016, in which he said Vladimir Putin is trying to, you know, reorder Europe to make it to reestablish a Soviet order in Europe, and he, you know, took one fifth of a country in Ukraine, and we need to respond more forcefully to that. And he interfered in the election; there is no question about that. He said at the time, and he's trying to make, you know, the United States and American democracy look like a third-world country, is the way he put it. Um, so he was actually pretty forceful on that since entering the CIA. He has still, he's never denied like Donald Trump has that the Russians interfered in the election, but what he has done is he's often pushed back when he gets questions from reporters on, well, did it affect the election outcome Um, or, you know, were they trying to help Donald Trump? And there he's often pushed back even though, um, and said, no, we have no evidence of that, even though what the U.S. intelligence agencies have said is that they don't, they they can't say one way or the other where, whether it affected the election. So he's been a little defensive of his president on that particular question while in the CIA.
0: So, so it's probably fair to say that his like um, ideological um, instincts uh, are are tempered by his sort of political instincts. It just just in that he seems to be able, malleable to a certain degree, to be able to like do that kind of mind meld with with his boss, the president, and and sort of get into his good graces that way.
1: I I think that is a fair assessment. He is. And mm -hmm. one of the criticisms of him at the CIA, although a lot of people have said he's done a, you know, have have given him high marks for what he's done. uh, One major criticism is that he's been overly political, more political than other past CIA directors have been in defending the president and defending his policies.
0: Um, and I guess the implication of that is to the extent that there is this deliberative interagency process of, of policymaking, and that, that's like a big if because that doesn't seem to be terribly existent in, in uh, the foreign policy decision making of, of this White House. But to the extent there is like this deliberative process, one might assume that Pompeo would just sort of try to predict what Trump would like as opposed to pushing his own kind of point of view as Tillerson did.
1: Yeah, I think I think that is true. I mean, one thing you know, he, he went on the Sunday shows just two days before this announcement that Tillerson was uh, being fired and that um, Pompeo would replace him. And when he was asked, "Will Secretary Tillerson be taking the lead in this upcoming summit between Kim Jong Un uh, and Donald Trump in these n- major negotiations? Will the America's t- top diplomat be taking the lead?" and his answer was, "No, the uh, President of the United States is taking the lead on this, and he is a, he is the decider." I think you'll see that um, as he takes in as he goes to. Fog about him and becomes the, the head of the State Department. I think you'll see something where he is kind of deferring to the president, being a forceful and enthusiastic defender of the president's policies, but not necessarily publicly breaking with him in a lot of ways so
0: my next question might be difficult if not impossible to answer because the CIA is just you know not transparent you know by by definition um, so it's sort of hard to get a read of like the bureaucracy of, of the CIA um, is, is sort of wants or or intends it at any given time just because you know it's a, it's a very secretive place as opposed to like the the State Department where things are more out in the open but um, is there any evidence or suggestion that um, that Pompeo was um, that his ideological sort of inklings and, and predilections were um, tempered by like the professional staff at the uh, CIA. You know, there's often this talk of being sort of being captured by the bureaucracy, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing um, where you have like ideologues, people come in there with like, you know, big plans of, of shaking up a democracy one way, see themselves kind of caught up, in in the bureaucracy of of the institution in which they are, are about to lead, and I'm wondering if we can expect that kind of tempering of of uh, Pompeo from the uh,
1: from the State Department bureaucracy. I, w- I would say you know yeah you're right that my view on that is only limited because of the nature of the CIA. My sense of what um, Pompeo did at the CIA is yes he was. P- political and was more outspoken, I would say, than some past CIA directors have been. He was a really strong defender of the agency and the work it did. You know, he if he wanted to be full on um, supportive of Trump, he would have expressed all the skepticism that Trump has expressed about the findings of the intelligence agencies, you know, their failures in the Iraq war, um, their, their, the, their limited ability to understand what Russia did in the 2016 election. That's something that Donald Trump has said repeatedly. Pompeo has not uh, supported that. And he has been a big defender of what intelligence can offer and what his uh, people were doing. And so I think I I expect him to actually be a pretty vocal defender of what the State Department is doing. He he has certain that I've observed... skepticism about what negotiation diplomacy can accomplish. Um, so, for example, with North Korea, I've heard him again and again express skepticism that uh, the United States can overcome North Korea's history of deceit in nuclear negotiations and can get them to fully denuclearize, even as he states that as a goal of these upcoming negotiations. So he may not be a full-throated defender of all the possibilities of what diplomacy can do, but in terms of what he, a defender of the work uh, that his... his people in the state department are doing. I expect him to to uh to be a vocal defender of that just like he was in the CIA. And I think actually a lot of people at the state department are looking for that because there was a lot of d- people were really demoralized under Rex Tillerson. They felt that all he was doing was reorganizing the agency and downsizing it and asking for budget cuts without defending the work they were doing and i think that actually pompeo might be a welcome uh you know entrant into the into the office right now if he if he does do that what i would think he will do which is be a, you know the biggest advocate of their work
0: which is which is important because and and so different from tillerson because you know to the extent that tillerson did or even wanted to advocate for the work of the State Department, his, um, you know, his recommendations, you know, basically fell on, on deaf ears in, in the White House because he had such a strained relationship with the president. But when you have someone who does have the seemingly close relationship with the president who is advocating on behalf of, you know, diplomats in the State Department, then you could potentially see at least a greater role of the state department in, in foreign policy making.
1: Yeah. I think for a lot of reasons, Pompeo will be more influential than Tillerson was for one reason. I think, um, he, he really does have right now a very close relationship with the president. He's been, he personally briefs the president on intelligence findings every morning, uh, for mo- most, most of the time he's been in office. Um, and so they have a good relationship. He knows how to communicate with Donald Trump. Also, um, because the State Department knows that, I think they will feel that they are more empowered. And then also outside of the United States, I think a lot of foreign officials will feel that he is a better uh, interlocutor than, than Tillerson was because um, he has the president's ear. And they can be confident that when they go to uh, a secretary of state, Pompeo, that what, the, what he tells them will in some ways be reflecting what the president's views are. Where I think there was a disconnect with Tillerson and that really undermined his ability to do diplomacy abroad as well.
0: So this nomination, this this uh, craziness happens and and comes at a pretty important time. Uh, as presumably, you know, the White House would be preparing for these face to face negotiations with Kim Jong Un if if they in fact happen. What's your sense? And I know you just posted a piece on the Atlantic uh, about. Uh, Pompeo and North Korea. But uh, what's your sense of how he would uh, approach these talks and, and, and this process? And what does his past statements about North Korea suggest uh, to you about how he might uh, approach this kind of pivotal moment in US diplomacy?
1: So I see two Mike Pompeo's, and I'm wondering which one will emerge during these negotiations. And one, we should also point out that, you know, he hasn't been confirmed yet. Um, yeah, well, we'll get into that yeah, in, in, in a minute. I, I mean, want to talk to about that, you about the politics of that. That, that. that is one That is one thing that who knows how much time he'll have to actually prepare for these negotiations if they're going to happen by May. Um, but – but the one Pompe- Mike Pompeo I see is the one that, if you tuned into Sunday shows, you know, a couple of days ago, you would have seen, which is going on and saying um, we are going to fully denuclearize North Korea through these talks. Uh, we're going to get a better deal than we than Barack Obama got with Iran. And Mike Pompeo is a, a very vocal critic of the Obama administration's uh, nuclear deal with Iran. His argument is that the Expiration dates on a lot of terms of that deal left uh, Iran in you know, 10, 15 years with the capacity to break out to nuclear weapons. And he says this, this deal will prevent any future breakout by North Korea. Now we should point out that that is a, an extremely tall order. Because North Korea has a very sophisticated nuclear weapons arsenal right now. They are on the cusp of having a long range nuclear capability that can threaten the United States. So they are much more advanced in their program uh, than Iran is in its program. And historically, there's only one country in the world that has given up nuclear weapons that it developed. It was South Africa in the 90s. And this is a very different circumstance. So the idea that they would do this is. Really far fetched. On the other hand, this is what Mike Pompeo is promising. So that's the one, Mike Pompeo. The second one is one who is much more realistic, I think, about what might be almost pessimistic about about what new, uh, talks can achieve. You know, I've heard him say that one North Korea keeps has a 25 year history of you know reneging on its commitments and not honoring them. But I've also heard him say that he assesses and you know you should take his assessments. At, at you know, strongly because he was a head of an intelligence agency that does this all the time, uh, does these kinds of personality profiles of world leaders. His assessment of Kim Jong-un is that he is a rational actor whose overriding mission is to survive and that Kim Jong-un sees uh, his main means of survival as threatening the world, being able to threaten the world with nuclear weapons and using it as a deterrent. And so what the implication of that is that it's going to be extremely hard to persuade him that there is a better course. And so one thing I've heard Mike Pompeo say repeatedly is that right now what we're trying to do, the United States is trying to do through its maximum pressure campaign, is to stop North Korea from progressing further and perfecting the ability to target the United States with a nuclear-tipped long-range missile. What that means is that it's kind of saying we want to try to freeze North Korea's progress in its place and not let it get to a point where we are being held at risk by North Korea's nuclear weapons. That's very different than totally denuclearizing the peninsula. And so my big question going into these talks is which Mike Pompeo are we going to see? Are we going to see the Mike Pompeo that insists on denuclearization? Or are we going to see the Mike Pompeo who is, you know, has a more jaundiced view of what can be accomplished and is aiming for something that might be more modest, but at least uh, blunts the threat to the United States?
0: well well just the, the fact that his position here does seem to be malleable um is i suppose somewhat welcome you know as you're entering these negotiations uh you want to have a sort of a flexibility of 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 options you don't want to be strictly ideologically committed to 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 something so you know it, it, that uh, to me at least seems like it's 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 a boon to the prospect of successful talks and and I should say i i do not think talks will be successful, but to the extent they are, it will be because officials are able to accept a variety of
1: outcomes. I agree. And and I think there's a way in which um, the Trump administration can spin a lot of different things as a victory. So for example, let's say they don't get denuclearization, but they're able to do something that the Clinton administration was trying to do in the late 1990s, which is restrictions on um, North Korea's long-range ballistic missile program. You could see a scenario in which the Trump administration justifies that by saying, "Remember, I told you we weren't going to let them be able to hit the United States with nuclear weapons. Well, now they don't have those long-range missiles anymore. They're not developing them anymore. We've achieved a, that specific victory, right? That's ha- a far cry from denuclearization. But you could see the argument that Pompeo or Trump can make there. My, my biggest, um, my biggest, you know, question about the way Pompeo has approached this and how he might change the course of these nuclear negotiations." Is that if he is a skeptic of what diplomacy can accomplish, um, then he then there's a chance in which they go into this uh, negotiation uh, and are disillusioned very quickly with what can be achieved, um, and and start to give up on diplomacy kind of quickly because they feel that anything less than something they could trumpet as like the Iran deal plus, you know, something even stronger um, is is too embarrassing for them to accept, being that Donald Trump styles himself as a dealmaker and Mike Pompeo has been so vocal in criticizing the Iran deal. And in that case, I think we need to think about where that leaves us, right? So if if Donald Trump, if we've gone in May, by May, to the pinnacle of negotiations, which is Donald Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un, how do where do we go from there on top of the mountain right what happens next if those talks fail and i think that's something that potentially is more likely with a secretary of state pompeo than it would have been with a secretary of state tillerson
0: interesting and and um you know the 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 pompeo's position on on the iran deal is is also sort of informative here i mean to me, it seems like diplomatically very, very difficult to simultaneously dismantle the Iran deal while trying to pursue negotiations with North Korea, if only because to the extent that a, a North Korea deal is is reached, I mean, it will, you know, chances are it will look a lot like the, the Iran deal, broadly speaking, in that you'd have some sort of easing of UN sanctions uh, in return for some sort of international inspection regime, presumably from the IAEA, if it's a denuclearization is, is part of the deal, um, which, of course, is, is, is also something that, you know, the international community needs to support. So, it would look a lot like a deal that they are currently trying to dismantle which seems politically a very difficult thing to do also to the extent that you need like the security council to back this deal because these are after all security council sanctions that are um so onerous that have been imposed on
1: on North Korea so you need their support to to ease them in in any way yeah i think there would be a lot of similarities and one um point to keep in mind when we compare the iran deal to a potential north korea deal is that um past North Korea deals have fallen apart repeatedly you know over the last two and a half decades over one particular issue, which is North Korea declaring all its nuclear activities and allowing outside monitors to verify that they have indeed you know ceased those activities. Verification is always hard in these things it's very hard for as you mentioned the International Atomic Energy Agency other outside monitors to verify that the terms of deal are terms of the deal are being complied with. But that is easier with Iran when they don't actually have nuclear weapons than when you have a country like North Korea that has nuclear weapons. And it's very hard to know that, let's say let's say North Korea says, okay, here you go, guys, we're going to give you 15 of our nuclear weapons. These are all of them. It's very hard to know there aren't 16 or 17 or 18. Um, that's a point that Bill Perry, the former defense secretary under Bill Clinton, made to me when he
0: Former podcast
1: oh, guest. Very um, well, his- yeah. I mean, I'm in great company. Yeah. Um, anyway, he <laughs> he um was very close to a nuclear deal with North Korea to to denuclearize in the late nineteen nineties, before North Korea had tested a nuclear weapon. And his argument to me is that even if North Korea were to say we're willing to denuclearize, which he thinks is very unlikely this time around. He, he just really doesn't think we can verify that that actually happens. And so he's arguing for things that are much easier to see and verify, such as a halt to nuclear missile tests. We know when there's a huge underground explosion of a nuclear weapon. We know when North Korea tests a giant missile, right? So those things we can tell whether they're happening. So that's something that we wouldn't be able to do with North Korea to the same extent we've been able to do with Iran. One other point I'd make uh, to, to keep in mind, everyone, schedule on everyone's calendars, is that everything is coming to a head potentially in May. Uh, because in mid-May, uh, Trump faces a deadline to continue suspending nuclear-related sanctions on Iran. If he decides, he, and he has threatened to not do that this time, which would potentially mean the end of the Iran deal. There's, at some point during that month, maybe after that deadline, Trump is scheduled to meet with Kim Jong-un. So the question is, you know, how will they approach that critical juncture with North Korea in mind and not just Iran in mind?
0: Uh, and, and, uh, another thing we uh, alluded to earlier is, is the domestic politics of, of this all. Um, Pompeo was confirmed as CIA director, uh, you know, by the Senate. I think it was like 60 something to 30 something. Um, you know, he does not have a lot of friends on the other side of the aisle because of his kind of Tea Party roots. I saw a note from uh, Barbara McCollum from Minnesota, a member of Congress from Minnesota, urging her Senate colleagues to vote against him Um I am wondering uh, what you, if you think that Pompeo might have any difficulty in his confirmation hearings. Um, you know, we already saw that Rand Paul, I believe, today is is coming out say he's going to vote against both Pompeo and uh, Gina Haspel to replace him as as the head of the CIA. Uh, what To what extent do you think um, Pompeo might find difficulty in, in getting confirmed?
1: I think people will certainly raise objections, as you're already seeing. You know, there have been allegations of Islamophobia, as you mentioned earlier, in, in terms of his comments uh, about, um, you know, Radical Islam and his equation of it, uh, with certain strains of the religion. Um, he, his replacement as CIA director is facing a lot of criticism over her involvement in interrogation and torture uh, during the Bush administration in the early two thousands. Um, so there, there are certainly objections. I will say, I don't get the sense so far in talking to people that he's not that he is in danger of not being confirmed. I think people will raise objections, but I think he has enough support on the Hill, uh, that he'll get through this. And I think there's also, there. I wouldn't say that everyone on the other side of the aisle is opposed to him. I think there are some people who feel that, who are very concerned about um, what Rex Tillerson did at the State Department, his advocacy of budget cuts, his just complete sinking of morale there. And I think there are some people who feel that Pompeo can actually improve that and can be, you know, a salve to a State Department that is really reeling right now. And so I think he actually may get some support from Democrats as a result of that.
0: And and he's gotten support from Democrats in, in the past, you know, and in, in general, you know, it's fair to say that the Senate, uh, gives wide latitude to the president to you know pick who he wants to serve in his administration. It's really only extraordinary circumstances that you see um, lockstep opposition to any particular uh, any particular candidate. Yeah, and
1: my view is the opposition to Pompeo right now isn't that extraordinary that it would result in him not being confirmed.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like a point of maximum leverage for like say McCain and. Corker and Graham, but you, you see them starting to make some noise about Gina Haspel at CIA, but not yet uh, much of anything about Pompeo as as uh, State Department chief. Yeah, that's my sense as well. Okay, so so any, any concluding thoughts? Anything else we should know about how Pompeo might conduct himself as uh, Secretary of State and anything else you're sort of watching or indicators you're looking towards to see how or, or what
1: he might prioritize? One thing, you know, I would think about is what happens to diplomacy now that there's someone at the helm of diplomacy who has the president's trust? Because, you know, if you think about what this emerging Donald Trump doctrine is, um, you know, I often think of it as kind of, you know, speak loudly and carry a big stick. Right. He he talks a lot. He makes a lot of provocative, um, you know, um, statements and uh, taunts and and declarations. And he has prioritized the military. You know, I, when I think of Donald Trump, I actually don't think of him as an isolationist. I think of someone who has led, who has, you know been active in the world in a lot of ways, but with a military first posture. You know, he's appointed all these generals to high positions. He's actually escalated a lot of the conflicts that Barack Obama uh, was involved in as well. Um, he, he tends to, th- you know, he appoints people even to diplomatic posts who are former military officials, um, but he has really uh, sidelined diplomacy. Um, and he is not, you know, he rarely has thought about that as a primary tool of American power. We're seeing a, a bit of a it's really surprising change in that in his handling of North Korea right now. Um, and the, one of the questions I have is whether a more empowered Secretary of State can make diplomacy again a major force uh, behind US power, or whether, you know, Mike Pompeo is going to run into the same problems that Tillerson did, uh, which is that. Donald Trump just doesn't believe in diplomacy and what it can achieve. And that's a-
0: I would actually push back on 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 that point on on North Korea in in particular if only because you know yes you know trump has you know saber rattled on on north korea but all the action on north korea has been diplomatic has been frankly at the security council where um you know his administration i think does deserve some credit and the credit here probably goes to nikki haley more than anyone else in keeping the security council totally unified on north korea and passing a series of increasingly onerous sanctions against them so I would say at least on North Korea it seems that that Trump has pursued a diplomacy first um policy I
1: agree so far he has um it has been marked by what I would refer to as coercive diplomacy in the sense that at least towards North Korea which is that it is it is you know diplomacy through economic sanctions and diplomatic isolation. Uh, But you're right that Nikki Haley has done really uh, unprecedented work at the the United Nations in getting other countries, especially China and Russia, on board with these various rounds of Security Council resolutions. But if you listen to Donald Trump's statements, he has often said, um, you know, he, he has expressed skepticism that this alone Will solve the North Korea problem, and he's often said, you know, they only understand one thing. He's, he's 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 spoken very vaguely about what he but what he thinks is the ultimate solution to North Korea, but often it has involved the implied threat of military action, and I think that has continued throughout this whole campaign. And there's it has never been clear to what end all of this coercive diplomacy. Uh, is for. Uh, And often he has hinted that um, it is to the end of removing nuclear weapons from North Korea, but if it doesn't work, there's going to be military action. And that's where I would say the military um, dimension of his thinking has still played a role, but you're right. So far, it has been uh, diplomatically led um, and it has been peaceful. And we'll see if that continues to be the case after the summit.
0: Uh, well, Uri, thank you so much. This was very helpful and clarifying and, and timeless.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Uri. And yeah, I mean, just I don't, I don't know what the rest of this week will, will bring. Who knows if John Bolton will be replacing H.R. McMaster as the National Security Advisor and we'd be headed to a global conflagration likes of what the world has never seen. Or maybe not. In any case, uh, I'll be here with you through it all, hopefully. All right, we'll see you soon. Bye.
1: The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.